Hello listeners, a friendly reminder that the companies and topics discussed on this podcast are general advice only. Please consult an advisor or accountant for any personal advice. Hello, good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are right now tuning into the Market Pulse podcast. Thank you so much for your support and I hope you are enjoying your week. So yeah, last week was a little bit of a bigger than usual episode of the podcast. If you listened to episode 52, you would have heard me note that that episode was a little bit different to the stock standard episodes that you're used to. I've named them explain this in quotation marks episodes and it gives me a, a bit of a chance to hone in on specific subjects that you know might be topical at a certain point in time, maybe the flavor of the month perhaps or just require a little bit more effort and explanation than probably what I usually give in a standard episode or podcast. So if you did like last week's little feature on NFTs, non-fungible tokens, uh, then yeah, let me know because they seem to have a unwavering popularity right now. I just keep hearing about it. I don't know, maybe it's just the algorithm because it knows I was doing so much Googling on them. But this week we will jump into or jump back into some more company specific use as well, some sort of broader economic stuff. We're going to quickly touch on where COVID sits on the world stage. Uh, We'll look at a few companies that I'll say favorites of the podcast, not that they're recommendations, but ones that we um, often check in on. So Kogan, uh, Whisper, uh, potentially Redbubble as well, Uh, the Buy Now, Pay Laters. We've actually got a question about the Buy Now, Pay Laters that I think I'll, I'll sort of merge that into the actual question itself. But as always, thank you so much for tuning in. You are listening to the Market Pulse podcast. My name is Dion Gribben, and this is episode 53, the We Don't Like It edition. Well, first and foremost, it is always good to check in and see how the market went for the week. And both here and in Australia, it was pretty much flat, but I will go over the exact figures. So the ASX 200 was up 0.08%, barely up, barely deserves a cheer there, I think. But I don't really have like a sort of um, a neutral sound to make, I don't know. The S&P 500 down 0.13%, the NASDAQ down 0.25%. So a bit of a eh, week there for uh, markets, both here in Australia and in the US. Okay, I think I might start with where the world's sitting in regards to COVID because it's been a long time since we've really gone back and checked on this. And it, we spent so much of last year in 2020 touching on this because this was you know, the single biggest driver of how financial markets were performing, be it good or bad, rising on pessimism or optimism because of COVID-19. And it's not that that's gone away. It definitely has not. Although you would argue that the optimism has certainly started to prevail, at least in countries like our own here, Uh, but certainly also in countries such as the US where the actual vaccine rollout has been pretty good, really, all things considered. Now, that doesn't mean that the US uh, handled it great as we um, um, touched on many points of data during last year of exactly how bad it was and how rampant it was. And there are still numbers of cases uh, each day, which we'll get to in just a second. They're certainly the leader 
uh, in terms of total COVID deaths. They're, they're fast approaching, well, not fast, but they're approaching 600,000 total deaths from the pandemic alone. Uh, but you've seen countries such as ones out of the South American continent, so Brazil, uh, even as going as far as Mexico, I guess being so close to the US, that probably doesn't help. Uh, and also India. But yeah, really, especially parts of South America and India itself are really some of the hot spots in the world at the moment. But in terms of the way cases are settling, if we sort of go back to the US, uh, at the moment they are on, or yesterday at least, they were on about 34,000 uh, new cases in a single day. And 30,000 cases a day is a far cry from where the US used to be sitting. So going back to you know, late last year, early this year, you know, we are talking about figures in the hundreds of thousands of uh, daily new cases in the US. So across that going in October, November, December, January, you know, you, you we had cases that were touching around the th almost 300,000 or going over 300,000 in a single day. So it's certainly come down a long way from where they were, but they've sort of been, they haven't fully, they haven't continued, sorry, they've They've come down and they've been sitting at this kind of average of around the 60s to 70,000 cases a day since around March going into April. And the trend line looks okay. Like it looks like it's still starting to go down. Um, but yeah, it's definitely not something that's fully gone away in the US. Now, one of the reasons that is, I mean, hopefully apart from increased education around social distancing but one of the reasons is around actually just just the other day, half the nation's adults in the US have now received at least one dose. Now, because you know you uh, whether you're doing Pfizer or AstraZeneca, you you do need two doses of the vaccine. So just yeah, it was only a few days ago they hit half of nation's adults uh, receiving at least one dose at this stage. So they have uh, pushed very hard on the actual vaccine rollout. Now, I guess the concern there is. How effective will that be overall? Because you know that's people that are you know jumping up and down quickly to get a vaccine. You got to worry also about vaccine hesitancy, which existed before all of the clotting issues that have come out. Uh, rare as it may be, uh, especially in the viral vaccines such as the AstraZeneca one. And so, so dealing with that vaccine hesitancy as they move forward um, and continue to open up their country and, and sort of get back on track. And part of the way that they've done this, at least on, a, on such a large scale, is each of the states taking control to open up these huge, you know, these vaccine sites where, you know, you can come in in your car and be vaccinated relatively quickly, which is something they've talked about doing here in Australia. So letting the states take control of uh, and sort of setting up these huge vaccination clinic areas, maybe on places where there's a lot of space, like a big football oval or something like that. And actually just getting people in quickly and, and pushing the vaccine along at a faster pace. One of the other interesting things that has come out as well regarding COVID, this doesn't really play back onto our markets at all, but the statistical anomalies in certain countries. So for one example, I, I remember reading an, an Economist article on this quite early on in the pandemic. It was it was basically an article that talked about certain countries, it named Russia as one of them, that but just just purely based on their geographical location. So just if you just take that into account, 
you know, relative to China, because obviously they border China, the the argument was saying just based on their location and based on the way travel between the two countries worked, that they should, probably should have a worse uh, outbreak than what's apparently being reported. And it was kind of long, always kind of theorized that the numbers coming out of Russia weren't uh, accurate. <laughs> and so what you can look at or what there are... every year there's data on how many people uh, in any given country so say let's take australia like how many people in australia just just pass away from anything you know any kind of cause of death could be cancer right could be in a car accident and they have an idea going into each year just based on past data of and based on you know current population of approximately how many people are going to pass away this year just due to standard causes and what's interesting is you can compare the reported numbers of COVID deaths in a country versus the increase in the amount of just total number of deaths from all causes. And you see some statistical anomalies which paint a picture of, well, perhaps the COVID deaths are much worse in this country than what is actually being reported. So I'll give you an example of this. So Russia for a long time were reporting around the 55,000 deaths uh, in total um, for COVID-19, but actual data for the entire year of 2020 came out of the number of uh, deaths in Russia from all causes, and it was about 230,000 people greater than what what should have been expected based on just past data of historical deaths of all causes. So whilst I was saying about 55,000 people had died from COVID, the data was showing, well, yeah, but 230,000 extra people than normal died this year. So potentially just pointing, and they've sort of had to, well, they're not showing saying that it's that much, but they have admitted that the numbers are higher than what they originally reported. But that's a really interesting thing. And the same thing kind of plays out in the US, although in other countries as well, even, in, even across Europe, comparing the total number of deaths uh, to all causes versus uh, COVID. And you see this discrepancy kind of everywhere. It's nowhere near as pronounced as that uh, Russian discrepancy there. Uh, but that's a really interesting indicator on just how bad uh, this was. Now, we'll stay on some just broader stuff just very quickly. Uh, but going to Australia, so we did see some updated uh, labour force data coming out of the Australian Bureau of Statistics. So, again, we like to always focus on the unemployment rate and the participation rate. So the unemployment rate did again, so taking into March 2021 now, it did dip again down slightly. It is uh, officially now at 5.6% in Australia. So that fell by 0.2 points. It is still almost slightly under half a percent higher than it was exactly a year ago, but um, yeah, recovered quite significantly there. So the other one worth pointing out there as well is the underemployment rate. So people who are employed but wanting to work more, like maybe you're uh, part-time but want to work full-time, that is now at 7.9%. The participation rate, which is another important one we always touch on as well in relation to labor force data. So it measures the, your percentage of the population uh, of the working age population that are in, in the workforce. So you know, we're looking at people that are employed, we're looking at people who are unemployed as well, but they're actively seeking a job. Now that rate what you, uh, before, so this is around March 2020, it was about 
66, almost 66%. Uh, uh, right now, it's actually slightly uh, above that. So for all people in Australia, it's 66.3%. Uh, for males, that data is almost bang on what it was in March 2020. So March 2020 was 70.8% among males. It's now 70.9%. So it's pretty much the same. Uh, interesting enough with females right before the pandemic or at least in March 2020, it was about 61.1% of participation rate. Uh, it's now above that slightly, so it's 61.8%. So it has um, increased a little bit more to, a little bit above rather, uh, what it was right before the pandemic hit. We're going to talk a little bit, we're going to talk on some company specific news and the companies that I mentioned around the top of the show, so Kogan, I also mentioned Redbubble. The reason they have been in the news is not for a good reason. They are, were some of the worst performers out of the ASX 200 last week. Uh, Redbubble itself down almost 30%, it was down 27% and Kogan, uh, Kogan's been heading downwards for a little while now but it was down 20% on the week uh, that was which is it's a big drop there for me it's kind of flagged them on my watch list as potential buyers soon because I've kind of been interested in both I've never held both um, but I've, I've watched with interest and I think again if you've got a longer term view so if you're looking over a few years uh, both of them have fantastic potential and future growth prospects, uh, but they are kind of suffering from a, you know, just the, what kind of tends to happen with these growth stocks is that if they're not hitting all the targets or every single time they come to the market and, pre and present like a quarterly update, uh, they can fall quite heavily because the market is all built on expectations. If they don't really meet that expectations, um, then the market kind of makes them pay for it. So let's start with, well, let's start with Redbubble. Again, if you're not familiar, they are, I guess, you, yeah, you definitely call them an e-commerce business. It's effectively like a marketplace that brings artists and consumers together. So let's say you're an artist, you can put up a design, say that you've created like a graphic design. Uh, you know, I can come along as a customer, say on Redbubble. And if, say, if I really like your design, I could just place it on anything I want, right? So I could, I might like that uh, particular design on a t-shirt or maybe, a cushion or a mug so you can kind of customize uh, from tons of different items um, like for example last year they got really popular with masks because everyone was buying masks um, due to COVID and artists were able to make kind of unique colorful or cool designed masks so it brings these artists together who make a cut out of the sale so again so say you're the artist and you put your design up there and I use it to buy like a t-shirt with that, you'll get a, a little bit of uh, money off that sale of the fact that I bought the t-shirt. And they've been really uh, growing in a, uh, a ton of popularity behind Redbubble, um, not just in Australia. So although, although they are an Australian company, they're uh, growing their business uh, worldwide. They announced a few good indicators in their, they basically did a trading update, which is a, a quarterly one, their marketplace revenue. So the way the marketplace revenue for them is reported or at least calculated. 
is it's a, a total of the actual revenue they brought in from their sales, but they take out the money that they pay to artists because I was telling you how they, they give a clip to artists. So total marketplace revenue of $456 million and that's up 85% year on year. So that's pretty big. Their gross profits are not net profit, but gross profit is up, um, or sorry, a gross profit of $184 million and that's up 100% compared to what was uh, the prior year. Now to pause and I guess give a little bit of reflection of where Redbubble has come from. You know, going into 2020, their share prices or their share price rather was around the dollar mark. Like it sort of had dropped right before Christmas. Uh, with the market sell off, it even went as low as around the 50 cents mark. Um, but since then, come a very long way because this is a company that. A, benefited from the pandemic because like I said, it's able to, so if people suddenly want masks like they did last year, then they can be a platform that offers masks. And like I said, it can they can offer cool masks like ones with actual unique designs by artists and people will get behind that. People will get behind the idea of giving back to uh, local artists as well. And their share price surged just due to the massive customer growth and revenue growth they were experiencing uh, it got as high, um, so I'm talking about from lows of a 50 cents mark, it got as high as in the $6 range, touching up to $7 just, uh, but has fallen away relatively significantly since then, now trading at about uh, $4.20. Now, it was probably, it, it, it's reasonable to say that this was kind of always probably going to happen, or at least on the cards, because it just had such a crazy run. You know, if you're still holding Redbubble from um, some of those uh, prices like around the 50 cents or a dollar or so, you're probably fine. Well, you definitely are fine. Um, but it's a question now of is the sell-off uh, a bit of an overreaction, I guess, in relative to the long term or is it warranted? Now, they have uh, Redbubble itself has big aspirations. Uh, so in a letter that they put out to the market as well or from the CEO, they are chasing over the next few years to look at marketplace revenue of $1.25 billion per annum. Remember I said before that it was currently coming in um, at $103.4 million and that was just for the quarter of the March quarter. Um, but they're seeing that they can you know, potentially triple to quadruple their annual uh, marketplace revenue from what it currently is uh, over the next few years that is. And they're going to have to invest and spend a lot of money to do that. So one of the other things they noted in that update was that their marketing spend um, increased by 71%, which is a lot. And, you know, investors also want to see that that marketing spend is working uh, successfully. So where they're spending more on marketing, hopefully they're bringing in more uh, actual revenue and customers. I don't think that the Redbubble update was a bad one. There wasn't something in there that specifically flagged some concerns for me. If I'm someone that's looking for a potential growth share and I've got at least a five-year horizon, then it's definitely worth, definitely the kind of company that's worth putting on your watch list to take a look at. Caveating that by saying that's not going to mean it's not going to be a bumpy ride. So yes, it's fallen from some highs. It might continue to fall. A little bit so it might fall down to closer to three dollars who knows it might go to two dollars maybe this is the bottom you know at the end of the day uh, no one's really going to be able to tell you the answer to that question but that's why i sort of 
propose it on an idea of a five-year scale because I think they're definitely doing the right things. They've definitely got a large market opportunity. Uh, it's just a case of riding that out, which can be a bit of a roller coaster over the next few years if that's something that you're able to do without panicking and, and selling and selling at a, at, a, at a terrible time. So yeah, the, the company, again, still showing me that they're doing the right things, uh, still showing extremely strong growth, which is important for a company like this that's just gone gangbusters on its share price and still investing for further growth, which is another important thing. So that's why I read, again, it's it talk, talking about the whole missed expectations and you know the market uh, puts these up on a pedestal and, and really expects the moon from these guys and sometimes they don't always hit that point um, but again if your if your time frame is longer than what the market's thinking so if the market's just thinking quarterly or just this year then it could be a really good opportunity the other one which has had a bit of a fall from grace and for, for some of it, not all of it, but some of it is for similar reasons in that this is a company, again, positioned well for COVID-19, uh, which is Kogan, the online e-commerce website. Now, looking back last year, it had an exceptionally excess, successful last year, like I said, positioned well, not just because they are an e-commerce company, but because they also, well, they sell so many different products now. But if you think about work from home setup, like they were very much well positioned to uh, sell the kind of things that we needed there. So like monitors and keyboards and mice, uh, their share price went on an absolute run when it sunk during the sort of market sell-off in March, got down to about $4 or just, just above $4. It ran during 2020 then as high as almost $25 and then now has come down to about the $10 mark or $10.34 to be exact when I am uh, recording this podcast. Now, Kogan on the 23rd of April, so just a few days ago, also put out a business update. So just like uh, Redbubble did, which helped, I guess, lead us a little bit lower uh, for the week, like I mentioned at the top of the show. Now, again, it wasn't because they just came to the market and reported tons and tons of bad news. Uh, we'll get to sort of one of what was kind of one of the drivers to make it head down. But I guess in terms of some highlights that they um, announced to the market in their business update, so revenue up uh, more than 65% uh, for the quarter, so that'd be compared to prior quarter. Uh, gross profit up by 54%. So some good numbers in there. But unfortunately, one of the, I guess, numbers that caught investors' attention from their update was the EBITDA that they announced, which had actually fallen. It had uh, declined by about 24%. And the reason behind this, and so what they flag in their business update, which left, uh, I guess, a little bit of a sour taste, it's definitely helped push the share price down for the week, was their inventory fees. Now, what Kogan are flagging is that they have a high number or a lot of inventory on hand uh, just due to the demand that they saw uh, during the first half of the current financial year. So you can understand uh, that, you know, especially the issue last year would have been for Kogan that they probably didn't have enough stuff uh, than what the demand was chasing because of 
the demand was not only high again because you think about some of the the work from home stuff and people upgrading uh, their homes same kind of dynamic played out with other stocks on the ASX like a Temple and Webster and some of those furniture companies like we, we've spoken about like a Nick Scarly Kogan obviously trying to address that demand has seen its inventory increase and that has caused them to pay significantly higher storage expenses but also there's these other fees that they pay that are charged to a company like Kogan when they fail to actually get their stock off a ship within an agreed time. So when it's coming off the actual ship, when it's coming on the boat, they have uh, particular times that they need to actually get it off the boat. And there's been delays on Kogan's side of getting that because they're having problem actually storing that inventory because, yeah, as you can imagine, and we again, this is another dynamic we spoke about, the issue will be for these kind of companies is in terms of their numbers and their reporting is part of it will be that 2020 will go down as a bit of an anomaly in that the numbers will be so ridiculously great for them, but you know, we'll never have, well, fingers crossed, we'll never have a, a, a year quite like 2020 again. So instead of me talking about it, I'll just take it here from their actual ASX announcement. Uh, Kogan said, so in the three months to March 2021, customer demand fluctuated below the levels seen in the nine months prior to December 2020, which makes sense. So as a result, the company was required to store larger than expected levels of inventory, and which caused them to incur higher storage expenses, as well as demurrage fees. Those demurrage fees are the fees that you pay to shipping companies due to a failure to actually discharge the stock from the ship within agreed times. They've also noted here that they expect to actually resolve that, resolve these inventory issues by May 2021, so by the end of next month. Uh, one of the things that they've also mentioned is they've been trying to, I guess, help make room by uh, increasing marketing and advertising um, of their products and their company, as well as running um, a lot more promotional activity uh, to try and move stock. In terms of an actual figure of these fees that they have incurred due, well, specifically to the demarriage fees, uh, that accounted to almost $4 million for Kogan. So it's relatively significant. It's not like a drop in the pond. So that's that's definitely the news that investors grabbed a hold of and it helped to drive the actual share price down further. But the reason I circle back to this in comparing it to Redbubble, which we just spoke about, is... Kogan, again, is probably one worth putting on the watch list because their share price has started to come down quite significantly. Again, Kogan and Redbubble suffering from sort of a general tech sell-off over the last few months, which we've touched on uh, due to the sort of fear around uh, rising interest rates. But also, they're also coming off extremely big, well, all-time highs for, for these stocks. And I always kind of thought that was going to happen. You know, it, eventually these kind of these kind of runs do run out of a little bit of steam, but then they also present potential opportunities for a, a longer-term investor to actually grab a hold of. Now, I'm not making any recommendations because I cannot give you any financial recommendations, but both Redbubble and Kogan, I think, are worth chucking on your watch list to look at. Again, if your uh, time horizon is something like five years, then these are both worthy companies that are showing great potential and great growth uh, to justify a potential investment, in my opinion. However, if you're looking to make a quick buck over the next few months, then 
I wouldn't um, be I wouldn't be touching it because, like I said, it's a, it, these kind of things are a little bit of a rocky road, uh, a little bit of a roller coaster. The thing is, you're never going to know when the actual bottom is. So, although both share prices have suffered quite significantly, like Kogan's back down closer to around the ten dollar mark now. Uh, that might not actually be the bottom. Like it might continue to further um, suffer over these next few months because you never know really what's on the horizon. But that's why we always talk about looking at it from years and years perspective, so like five years, because one can imagine that Kogan and Redbubble are in much stronger, uh, much better positions based on their current growth rates in five years' time. So two companies there to certainly keep your eye on over the coming months uh, ones that have uh, seen a bit of a downgrade in their share price performance, but um, both companies certainly priced for future growth and priced for success. And staying on the topic of companies that are priced highly and, pr- and priced for success, we're going to talk about Afterpay because they were in the news as well. And I'm going to sort of segue this into the actual listener question as well. Now, this listener question comes to us from... Amy, which I had, a, I had, I've had an Amy ask a question before, but the spelling's different, so I'm going to assume it's a different Amy. But this one is from Amy out of Canberra. She says that she is a Afterpay shareholder. Uh, I don't know when she got into Afterpay. You know, if Amy, if you bought Afterpay at like ten dollars, then congratulations. If you bought it at one hundred and fifty dollars, then my condolences. But <laughs> Uh, Amy asks about the news recently that the company Afterpay is actually looking at listing in the US, so dual listing, so not just being listed here in Australia, um, but also over in New York. I don't know if it's they're looking at the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ. I would think NASDAQ, but it doesn't really matter probably. Now, they also gave a quarterly business update and they touched on this news that had been floating around. So they said Afterpay is currently working with external advisors to explore options for a US listing given the US market is now the largest contributor to our business and it's expected to continue to grow strongly. Uh, Afterpay intends to remain an Australian headquartered company. Our shareholder base is increasingly becoming more globally focused. A US listing would further accommodate this growing interest. Uh, They sort of say there's no timeline. They're obviously still trying to work out exactly how that would play out for them. Uh, But Amy's question is, as someone who is a shareholder, what does that mean for her? Well, it doesn't mean that you lose your shares or anything like this. Um, It doesn't mean that Afterpay will cease existing on the Australian Stock Exchange. It would just mean that it would be listed on both. And that can, well, I guess the benefits, they kind of gave the answer to your question in a a way. It's um, not super specific, but... The, the fact that they, they said something about their business is, well, the, the US part of their business is becoming or it has become the largest chunk out of the whole Afterpay company. And a similar thing is happening to Zip where they acquired QuadPay and that is pretty close to being the actual biggest part of their whole business. So it also kind of, you know, if QuadPay for Zip becomes the biggest part of their business, does does that mean you should probably rename the company then because it sips now the minority? But anyway, I'll go back to Afterpay. Now, there's a few reasons why it makes sense to dual list. So firstly, again, if your operations are more than just Australia, in this case, if you're expanding into the into Europe, if you're expanding to the US, 
it might make sense to open up to other investors. And when I say other investors too, I mean much, much, much bigger investors, a lot of liquidity, um, especially in a place like the US. Now, a good example of this playing out in Australia, so on our stock exchange here is BHP, the, the mining giant. They are obviously very well established in Australia, one of the biggest companies on our stock exchange, but they're not just listed here on the ASX. They are actually, they trade on the, I think it's the New York Stock Exchange. Yeah, it's definitely the New York Stock Exchange. They also trade on the London Stock Exchange as well as uh, Johannesburg in South Africa. Now, there's a few reasons that uh, BHP is a global business. They, it's not like their business and operations exist only in Australia. They exist all over the world. They are also strongly tied to commodity prices. So iron ore, copper, those things. And those markets aren't just a, you know, 10 to 4 in Australian time market. You know, commodities markets operate 24-7. And that's, I guess, reflective of BHP because if they're listed in London, in South Africa, in New York, Australia, they're kind of at all points... At, all, at any point in time, basically, BHP is trading somewhere in the world and can be reflected in the moving commodity prices. So it's a couple things there for them. For Afterpay, if we circle back, I think it just makes sense as that business starts to grow and specifically once that, that US component is now crossed over to be bigger than the Australian part of their business, it makes sense to potentially open it up to other investors who might be interested in the afterpay business. It could actually also be a big positive. So especially in the US, you tend to find that uh, share prices and valuations are pushed even further, especially amongst tech stocks. So potentially you might actually see it be a positive as an afterpay shareholder where uh, perhaps afterpay is quite popular when it lists over there. And if it does, if it has like say a, a good week, um, that's going to be reflected when the Australian markets open and the afterpay share price trades here. So it'll very much uh, take its cues from how the, the US market performed. In terms of what it means for you individually as a, as a shareholder, again, it doesn't doesn't take away your afterpay shares. It doesn't mean that you're at a disadvantage, so to speak. It just means that the company will be raising further capital, uh, but in another market. Now, there still might be changes for you as a shareholder. Now, so so I don't want to... There's potentially the path that they could go down where they delist from the ASX. Uh, that's all... Um, so when I say delist, so they take themselves off the exchange to then just go list purely on the, on the US exchanges like the NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange. There's definitely no confirmation or word of that happening. My gut says they probably won't go down that route. What might happen though is your shares get converted into what's called a chess depository interest. So it's kind of like a, I guess you could call it like a a mirrored representation of the stock that operates on the ASX. And there are already Australian stocks that are these chess depository interests or CDIs as we'll just call them CDIs for short. I think ResMed is one, I know News Corp is one because again, they're companies that are listed over in the US and these CDIs effectively are one for one giving you a representation of 
or in giving you the the benefits and the value of actually owning that stock as, as well. It's a little bit different in terms of how the actual ownership works. It's not like you have the specific legal title to the actual stock. It's kind of represented uh, through the ASX chess system uh, on behalf of you. Uh, but it's still the same way to actually benefit from Afterpay itself. And so it still will move in the same way that a share price moves. And again, so if, you, if the Afterpay share price is doing well over in the US, you'll see that benefited back on the actual CDIs trading here in Australia. So at the moment, it's a little bit too early to, to, to say exactly how it will play out. But if you're currently a shareholder, it's not something to be uh, super concerned about. And I would, I would say that Afterpay is likely to um, look after its, its existing Australian shareholder base. So Amy, I hope that answers your question there. And thank you very much for that question. And thank you very much for listening to the Market Pulse podcast. This has been episode 53. And yeah, it feels good to be back doing a relatively standard episode after our NFT, which is you know, really just going off into the weeds <laughs> uh, last week. In terms of what I'm looking forward to most this week, there's still going to be some more of those quarterly updates from our um, Australian-based companies like the Red Bubbles and Kogan that we spoke about this week. But uh, the US markets are also in earnings uh, release season, and this is a massive week for some of the biggest companies in the world, uh, definitely the biggest companies in the US. So a few of them that are reporting figures this week are Tesla, Apple, Facebook, Spotify, Microsoft, Pinterest, Alphabet, which is Google, Visa, MasterCard, Amazon, Starbucks. Don't really care about Starbucks, but uh, <laughs> throw that in there. And a bunch of others, but that will be big because those are not just the biggest companies in the world, but they are the biggest drivers of the US market as well. So what they are coming to the market with this week will certainly set the tone. So watch out for that. But that's it. That is a wrap. Thank you so much for tuning in. This has been the Market Pulse podcast episode 53. Please jump onto your preferred podcast platform and give it a star rating and review. And I will see you next week for episode 54. Cheers.